0: Let's turn our attention now to 1 Samuel chapter 4, page 228. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 4, page 228. read this chapter in its entirety. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel when the battle spread. Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the Ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line, And came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? And the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat By the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. She did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to the reading and preaching of it. The slogan uh, printed on the belt buckle of the Nazis during World War II was Gott mit uns. Gott mit uns. Now, if you know German, you probably recognize, actually, even if you don't German, know German, you can probably hear it. Uh, that phrase, Gott mit uns, means God with us. And uh, for an endeavor that was so abundantly evil, it's uh, amazing that some were deluded. In thinking that the Lord was on their side. Well, perhaps they thought God was on their side because they branded his name on their uniforms. Uh, People do that sort of thing. They fall into that um, way of thinking that God can sort of just be evoked or called upon. And and he needs to help. He needs to show up. They use God then like a sort of talisman or a lucky charm. Uh, His name is invoked by politicians when they think it's going to help them garner votes in a particular district. His name will be uh, ignored by politicians. If they think it's not going to help, people will put God on their dating pro- profiles in the hopes of helping them find a mate, uh, even if they have little to no interest in the Lord himself. Uh, maybe you have even tried to harness the power of God um, without any real interest in a relationship with him. What does that look like? Oh, it can look like any number of things. Maybe it's what you're doing right now, showing up to church, uh, sitting dutifully uh, in the pew there and, and trying to pay attention because good people go to church, right? Or if you go to church, that means you're a good person. Good things will happen. That's the sort of way we can actually... Manipulate God or try to manipulate God into thinking, if I do X, then God needs to do Y. Maybe you've even said that. Maybe you've prayed that. You've needed something and you say, Lord, if you give me X, I promise I will give you Y, even though you have no interest in Y, even if he gives you X. These are ways that we um, treat God in a way that's very similar to how Israel is treating him and operating in this chapter. They have seemingly no vital relationship with Yahweh whatsoever. Uh, there has yet to be real reform in the land since the days of the judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You recall that First Samuel begins kind of where Judges ends. Samuel, the character, the person, Samuel is the last judge and also the first prophet in Israel. So there is this overlap, and we see we're not really out of that dark period of the judges, uh, and we uh, we know that because here when Israel finds themselves in trouble. Um, They realize, oh, we hadn't really been paying attention to Yahweh. Maybe we should do that again. Uh, Yahweh is just somebody to be appealed to and invoked uh, when they have need of him. And so they try to manipulate him for their own ends. We're going to see what led to that manipulation, and then we're going to see where that manipulation leads. Uh, But most importantly, our aim in this study of the chapter uh, today is to ensure that we never dare treat God the same way that Israel treats God, and that we never find ourselves in the tragic circumstance of the nation where they have to cry out that God has departed from them, that God has left them. So what led to the manipulation? The first thing we see is that Yahweh is forgotten. Yahweh is forgotten. That leads to Yahweh being manipulated, and that leads to Yahweh departing from the people. That's the basic shape of this chapter. First, though, he's forgotten. He is not on the minds of the people of Israel at all as they head into battle. Uh, they're going to fight against the Philistines. This is the first time we hear of the Philistines in the book of Samuel, and yet we're going to hear about them o- over a hundred times uh, in the remaining uh, uh, chapters of First and Second Samuel. They are like the main bad guys uh, against Israel during this time. Uh, They occupied five cities along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in a region that everybody's talking about. We call it now the Gaza Strip. That is uh, where the Philistines uh, lived. Uh, That is not who occupies it today, but exactly where there is fighting going on today is where the fighting occurs in this chapter. That's uh, just to kind of help you um, conceptualize what's taking place. We're not told why Israel went out into battle against them, though the deduction would be that the Philistines were trying to encroach on their territory. In that case, the Israelites had a legitimate reason to fight against them, to go into battle, or maybe I should say they could have had a legitimate reason or could have had a legitimate motive because they could have been thinking, this is God's land, this is the land that God gave us, and so in order to promote or protect or preserve his holiness, we need to fight and to get the land back. That could have been their motive, but based on the fact that Yahweh is not mentioned at all at the beginning of this chapter, it's most likely that their motive went something like this. This is our land. This is our turf. Uh, And to preserve and protect and promote our name and our status, we need to fight to get it back. The Philistines are making us look bad, but it's precisely because Yahweh is in the picture. That victory eludes them, and the defeat is truly horrific. Nearly four thousand people are killed, and then suddenly Yahweh remembers, or Israel remembers. Oh, yeah, there's this God who called us into covenant that we belong to. We forgot about Him. And look at verse three with me. They ask this question. The elders of Israel said, "Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why has the Lord?" defeated us now now yahweh's in the picture again the lord is is in in their thoughts and in their um uh, in the way they're evaluating this process and they they say the lord has defeated us on the one hand this might sound kind of like petty blame shifting um suddenly when something happens that they're not happy about they need to to blame it on somebody you know in, in our uh house if you eat the last Oreo in the pack, somebody is liable to say, why did you eat all the Oreos? You know, And my answer always is, I didn't eat all the Oreos. I just ate the last one and all the ones before that. But I didn't eat all the Oreos. You just need somebody to blame. I get it. You're upset. Maybe that's kind of what's happening here. You know? Well, Yahweh didn't defeat them, but they need somebody to blame. And so they, they point the finger at Yahweh. On the other hand, there's something actually theologically profound about what they say. Why has the Lord defeated us? Because, indeed the Lord did defeat them. It was the Lord's will that they would not succeed, and that's because they were living without him. So they're asking the right question, but they give the wrong answer. The right question is, why has the Lord done this? And the right answer would have been, because we are far from him, because we have forgotten him, because we've abandoned him, because God wants repentance from us before he wants Us to win a land dispute. Because God wants our holiness more than he wants our victory. That would have been the right answer. But this is the answer they give. Why has the Lord defeated us? Because we didn't have the magic box. That's what they say. And this is where we see now they manipulate Yahweh. They forgot him now once they remember him. They try to manipulate him. So they say let's go get the good luck charm. This God box. They assume that having the Ark of the Covenant will de facto bring them victory. Now, of course, the ark was indeed the sign of God's power, the sign of God's presence with the people. Uh, we read in Numbers 10.35, whenever the ark set out, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Of course, there, what Moses is recognizing, though, is that the ark is a symbol of God's presence, and so the enemies need to scatter before the Lord, not before the Ark. It's the Lord who causes the enemies to be defeated. Israel forgot that. In uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones's uh, partner at the at the um, uh, college, Marcus Brody, remarks that any army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. It's a line from the movie. Now, that's not biblically accurate, but we don't want to blame. George Lucas, the producer, Steven Spielberg, the director, or Lawrence Kasdan, the screenwriter, because before they got it wrong, Israel got it wrong. That's what Israel thought. If we have the Ark, we're invincible. They assume that they will have victory. Maybe they think God will be forced to fight for them because the symbol of his presence is out there for everybody to see. You know, They're they're saying, look, uh, everybody, the Philistines, are going to see the Ark, and so if you don't show up, And if you don't fight, what are they going to think about you, God? What are they going to think about you? It's almost sort of like spiritual blackmail. Um, The fundamental error, of course, being that they think that God can be manipulated or exploited or intimidated. No, the reality is if God will defeat for his people, then a million arks would not have saved them. So they march to Shiloh, they pick up the ark. Those wicked priests, Hophni and Phinehas, are there. They're proving this all along. Yeah, this sounds good to us. Let's do this. They launch a second offensive. They're feeling pretty smug about it this time. They shout so loudly, verses five and six, that the enemies can hear them miles away. And it seems for a moment like the Philistines are just going to give up there. But then they kind of have this, you know, motivational speech moment. Let's, you know, let's be men. Let's fight. And what happens? Well, their loss. It's even worse than the first time. Verses 10 and 11, let's look there. This is what we read. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons Eli, of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, died. So it's far worse than the first time, because uh, uh, for one reason, 26,000 more people died than the first time, uh, uh, second Everybody who survived ran away and hid and fled to their homes. A uh, third, uh, the the priests of the people die. Now that was predicted, but this is where it finally happens. They lose their their priests. But the the fourth reason, the fundamental reason why this is a worse defeat than the prior one, is because the ark was captured, signifying that Yahweh himself has departed from his people. And so here we come into now the third. Um, Uh, segment of this this episode, we say Yahweh's forgotten, and then when they remember him, they manipulate him, but once they try and manipulate him, he departs from them. Yahweh's departed. The Israelites learned a hard lesson when they manipulated Yahweh that, in fact, he can't be manipulated. And if they're not interested in him, only what they think they can get from him, he'll judge them by removing his gracious presence from them. And Eli, the, the old Priest understands what God is doing. Oh, look at uh, verse 18. This is after one of those uh, survivors fled. He runs back to uh, Shiloh and he's telling the townspeople what's happening. They're all crying. And Eli, he uh, can't really see well, but he's hearing something's going on. He's, he's asking people, what's going on? What's going on? And this guy comes and he tells him about this terrible defeat. 30,000 people have died. The rest of us have fled. Even your sons have died, and then he says, "Look at verse eighteen uh, and he says the ark was been taken. then verse eighteen says, as soon as he mentioned the ark, Eli fell over backward from his seat that's That's when he has this heart attack, breaks his neck, and dies not when they not when the guy tells him, Your sons are dead, no when he says, Your lord is gone that's that's when he has this this um moment of panic that leads to his death so eli understood how terrible it was for yahweh to depart from the people and the uh, his daughter-in-law the wife of phineas recognizes it too uh, because she names her child uh, that it sounds like she's induced in a childbirth because of the terrible news that that has come back from the battlefield she names her child Ichabod, not in honor of her deceased husband, Phineas, but to commemorate the fact that Yahweh has departed. Ichabod means, um, where is the glory? And she's saying the glory is gone. It's not here. Because the ark has been captured, God isn't with us. That's God's way of telling us he's not with us. And so Eli and his daughter-in-law, they get the implication here. This is a big deal. Yahweh has left. Really, this is, this is a national disaster for Israel, a national disaster. Ulysses S. Grant uh, commented upon the assassination of President Lincoln, saying, quote, In his death, the nation has sustained its greatest loss. That's quite a comment to make after the Civil War had ended and thousands upon thousands uh, had died, and yet the, na- the nation's greatest loss was in the death of the president, Uh, More remarkable is that even the Confederate General Robert E. Lee admitted to his wife in a letter, quote, I cannot help but regard his his death as a great calamity. Such was the effectiveness of Lincoln's leadership that the entire nation uh, despaired for the future without him. Here's how one New York Times columnist put it at that time. Quote, never has a national bereavement produced such a widespread and profound sensation we shall not soon cease to mourn the death of the most illustrious of our citizens. There seems to be no place, no heart, no feeling for any hope. It's a national disaster. Well, Israel's mourning something far greater than the loss of a leader. They're not mourning the deaths of Hophni and Phineas. They're not even mourning the death of Eli, who judged them for 40 years and led them for 40 years. They're not mourning the loss of a leader. They're mourning the loss of their Lord. Their lord is gone and it's not because somebody killed him it's because he voluntarily got up and left because he's sick of them because they had abandoned him because they had blasphemed him he said I'm done with you and the glory has departed so their mourning is right the fears are proper this grief unto death is appropriate because apart from the nation apart from God the nation is as good as dead And friends, the same is, of course, true for us. Without God, we have nothing. Uh, We are without hope. Without the Lord, there's no life. And so we want to approach this text today really carefully, and we want to ask, what can I do, what must I do to ensure that I'm not forgetting my God, that I'm not trying to manipulate my God, that my God would not depart from me? This disaster is not restricted to just the Old Testament. Jesus says to the churches in the New Testament, Revelation If they don't get their act together, he says, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand from you. I'm going to remove the sign of my gracious presence. That's what happens with the ark. And Jesus says that can even happen today. So what do we learn from this text? I want to just draw out two points of application. First is this. We need God's word more than we need our way. We need God's word more than we need our way. Israel wanted another trophy on the shelf. They wanted another opportunity to brag about their awesomeness more than they actually wanted to do what God wanted them to do. And we know that's the case because of what we read in verse 4. Look there with me in verse 4. This is very instructive for us. And look at what we read in verse 4. Maybe I should say what we don't read. Because in verse 4... Uh, the people have determined they're going to go to Shiloh uh, to pick up the ark, right? So the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Where are they going? They're going to Shiloh. Who is there right now? Samuel. Samuel is there the new prophet from God. We've just been told at this conclusion of chapter 3, and really the, it's kind of a in between a verse that, that concludes 3 and starts 4, verse 1, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And uh, even verse 20 of the previous chapter, all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. They go to Shiloh where the new prophet is, and they all know that he's a prophet. They all know he's there. His word had gone out to the whole nation. Everybody was aware of the fact that God had raised up a prophet. And so they go to Shiloh, and what do they say to Samuel? What do they ask of him? What, what, what sort of conversation do they have with him? They don't have one at all. They go to where God, the, the place where God's prophet is, where God could speak to them and to, could direct them if they would seek his face. And they bypass the prophet. To go straight to that magic box. Why? Because they want their way and their win more than they want God's word. If they speak to Samuel, there's the chance that God will redirect them. There's a chance that they'll learn that God doesn't want the thing that they want. Why then bother with God's word if it might not confirm their convictions? Don't we do the same thing? Don't we do the same thing? Right? We, we feel like we have... Um, something that there's something we need you know i won't even say something we want i'll say something we think we need something that's right it needs to be this way and then what do we do once we've made that deduction that conclusion we plug our ears to anything god's word might say because we don't want to be set off course we don't want to be told actually maybe we're wrong Uh, maybe there's something else we need to do Uh, the church has caved under that sort of pressure along. With the culture, think about the things that that we've rejected just wholesale as um, a church. In many places of, of the world, the church has rejected the authority of God's word and what it says about things like cohabitation or sexuality or gender. Why? Because the church has convinced themselves that what we need most is to be winsome and to be attractive to the culture, and so let's not worry about what God's word says. Let's worry about what we can do. That's the most important thing, and so... Uh, what we can do to, to win people, and so they, uh, people have convinced themselves that they need something that God's word doesn't permit. And instead of reforming their perspective, they ignore their Lord. We do that too. Instead of reforming our perspective, we ignore our Lord. And we, every time we sin, that's what we're doing. Instead of changing our opinion, changing our perspective, making it align with God's word, we just don't heed God's word at all. What we forget, of course, is that if there is something truly we need, God's not going to withhold it from us. So we don't need to do that sort of manipulation. We don't need to set out on our own course without uh, giving attention to what God says because he promises us that he'll supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. He promises us that, that he'll give us the desires of our heart. So we don't need to scheme. We don't need to fret. We simply need to rest in God's provision and the goodness of his will. But we can't do that if we're not saturating ourselves in God's word, coming to God regularly in prayer. These are the ways in which God reveals his will to us in his word and in prayer. And so what we need to be asking routinely is is not, Lord, how are you going to get me the thing I want? It's, Lord, what do you want? And what do I need to do to submit myself to your will and your way? We're not going to do that perfectly, but we need to at least do it. Here's the attitude of the faithful servant of God. It's... From Psalm 119, 35, 36, and 37, the psalmist says, Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Isn't that interesting? The psalmist says the opposite of God's testimonies is selfishness. If you're not applying yourself to God's word, you must be applying yourself to your own selfish way. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. God's word has authority in our lives. That is a counter-cultural message today, to say the least. That is what the Reformation recovered, though, wasn't it? The supremacy, the authority of God's word, even over the traditions of the church. Today we need to again assert the authority of God's word, not just over um, the traditions of uh, church, but even... Over our own desires and preferences, self-expression is not the end-all, be-all of human existence. Submitting to God's word is the end-all and the be-all of human existence. And so on this Reformation Sunday, I thought we could hearken back to the wisdom of our forefathers and think on these words from a Reformed confession that you've never heard of. It's called the French Confession of Faith, Article 5. It was written in 1559 uh, with a brand-new Reformed church in France, secretly holding its first synod in Paris, 1559, listen to this from Article 5, we believe that the word contained in these books, the Bible, has proceeded from God, whence it follows that no authority, whether of antiquity, well, people have been doing this for a long time, of custom, well, this is what we do, of numbers, popularity, everybody's doing it this way, Human wisdom, judgment, proclamation, edicts, decrees, counsels, or visions, or miracles should be opposed to these holy scriptures. But on the contrary, all things should be examined, regulated, and reformed according to them. Well, does that describe Israel in 1 Samuel 4? Are they taking all things and examining and regulating and reforming them according to God's word? How could they when they don't even talk to his prophet? No. Well, what about us? Do we determine something is good or right or necessary apart from seeking the wisdom found in God's word? Do you care more about a win in life, more about getting what you want, than hearing what God wants from you than submitting to God's word? If you don't course correct, you could find yourself in the terrible situation of Israel with the gracious presence of God being removed and God departing. And if you got everything you wanted in life, but didn't have God's word, then that is no win at all. The disciples were exactly right when they said to Jesus, to whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of life. Words of life. So if you want to live, realize that God's word is the most important thing in your life. We need God's word more than we need what we want. That's the first application. The final thing, briefly here, is to say this. We need our religion to be undergirded by a relationship. We need our religion to be undergirded by a relationship. I'm not saying, as some people do, that you don't need religion at all um, because it's just a relationship. That's sort of like bumper sticker theology. Maybe you've seen posts like that. Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship. Wrong. It's both. And it needs to be both. If you have just the religion without the relationship... Then you get what we find in 1 Samuel 4, thinking if you just go through some motions, God is compelled to respond to you. Of course, if you have this relationship without religion, then you don't have the relationship at all. The way God structures his relationship is primarily through the rhythms of organized religion, the church, right? How do we get to know God? Well, we come and we hear his word preached. We 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 pray to him. We, we commune with him in the sacraments. These are all things that take place in the context of religion. It's not a bad word. But you need religion undergirded by a relationship. Otherwise, you're going to just think it's a lucky charm sort of situation. Without it, that's how you get Nazis branding God's name on their belt buckles. That's how you can have the sort of contradiction that I uh, discovered this uh, past week. I was flying to South Carolina and... Uh, there was a young girl, teenager, sitting next to me, and she made a comment. Uh, she initiated this. She said, we're reading very different books, aren't we? And um, I was reading a book called The Whole Christ, and she informed me that she was reading um, a young adult gay romance novel. What do you do then, right? Well, you want to talk about this, right? Um, but she proceeded to tell me she no longer goes to church. She used to, but um, she was hurt by the church, and she doesn't think... Uh, that it's right for her to be there. But she does still think there's a place for Jesus in her future. And to prove that to me, she showed me her necklace, which was a cross necklace. And she says, so I keep this just in case. Just in case. Just in case, what, we're wrong about this whole church thing, wrong about this whole Christianity, and we just need to kind of pull the um, the, uh, eject cord at the last moment, get the parachute out. Just so we can prove we were on the right side all along. He said, well, I had the necklace. Nazi Nazis said, we had the uniform. Well, that's just externals. And the Bible denounces that sort of thing over and over and over again. These people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Or Jesus says, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. Because in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. So I said, behold, I've come to do your will. That's what gives God pleasure. God isn't interested in the externals of religious worship if they are not undergirded by a heart that loves him, that wants to use those externals to draw near to him. He wants us to do his will, to live lives of faith and repentance and holiness. So the warning today is that we must never try to get the blessings of God apart from the person of God who is in himself true blessedness. Never try to get the blessings of God apart apart from the person of God, because his person is the blessings. And so how do we do that? The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. In Christ, God is proving himself to us, as it were, to be far more than just a good luck charm or a talisman or a genie in a bottle or a power to be harnessed. He's saying, I am a person, a person to be loved, to be known, to care for. So the way to ensure that your religion is undergirded by a relationship is to build that religion on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when you know Jesus, and I mean like when you truly know him, when you realize what he did, like the distance that he went from heaven to earth, what he gave up, all that he left in order to redeem you. You won't just want his stuff. When you think about the crucifixion, how he hung there naked and, and And and, and in pain, in agony. Why? For you, you don't just want his stuff. You want him. Somebody would do that for me? I want to know them. I want to get to know that person. We want to serve Christ even if we don't get anything out of it. We want to read our Bibles not because we assume it's some boomerang effect of blessings coming back to us because we do something God wants or in our Bibles because our Bibles tell us about this person and we get to know him. Uh, we'll, we'll come to church not to check off a box but because that's where Jesus promises to meet us. Real religion is the relationship. Real religion longs to draw closer to this person, this Christ. And we can do so with this wonderful confidence that when we draw near to God through Jesus Christ he promises us That this Ichabod thing will never happen to us. The glory will never be departed. Because Jesus' word to his people is, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word to us. Uh, We ask that we would uh, be quick to submit to it in all of life and to be conformed by it, to let it conform us, to change us, and to shape us. Uh, Father, our our prayer is is truly that Christ would be so formed in us and live in us that all our thoughts would be brought into captivity to him, and our hearts would be established in every good work now and forever. Your word has the power to change us, and we uh, ask that you would never let us to go another day without heeding it, That we would never bypass your prophetic word to us as Israel did in this chapter. But that we would come regularly and find in your word the story of our Savior. That we would hear him speaking to us. That we would be drawn in love to him. That our relationship with him would be strengthened. And that we would be established in true religion. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.